Welcome to How to Live with the Rich, a limited series podcast about how the middle class can actually, practically, and biblically help the poor. I am your host, Beck Isaacson, and welcome to the show. Well, welcome back to the podcast, everyone, and to today's episode, which is all about justice and righteousness. I am really excited about this one as I think it really just gets to the core about what this whole thing, this whole podcast is all about. But as per usual, we are going to start with tiny happy things because we all need a little bit of that in our lives. And today it's going to be all about stamps. Now, I know that seems very odd, but you know, I'm a very odd person in general, and so I guess it kind of fits. And for whatever reason, I just really love a good set of stamps. Now, let me clarify. I don't collect stamps. I don't really collect anything except for mugs, and I don't use stamps really all that often. But when I do, I want them to be fun, I want them to be topical, and I want them to bring joy to whoever is opening the mail. This is why I shop for stamps online, so I can view the entire collection available and pick the ones that bring me the absolute most amount of joy. For example, right now on the USPS website, there are some very cheesy, very average ones, you know, like flowers and flags and whatever. But then, when you dig a little bit deeper, there are the gems. For example, there are these super adorable vintage fruit ones. There are some Scooby-Doo ones, which, you know, that's a good contender. There are these really fun, like, Western wear ones, which are basically, like, boots and hats and cowboy shirts in a cool, like, printed artsy design. And then, then there is the granddaddy of them all, which, of course, I purchased immediately. And that is, there is a whole series of otters in the snow. Literally an entire series of adorable otters being adorable in the snow. I mean, if you are going to get a letter in the mail, who would not want to get it with an otter in the snow? The answer is nobody, because that is the dream, the peak of life. It does not get any better than that. And so moral of the story, get some stamps that make you happy and make other people happy. And on that note, let's talk about justice and righteousness, a topic that is very close to my heart in a podcast about all kinds of things that are very close to my heart. So I hope you are ready to be real, real close to what makes me very passionate today. And so to start, let's talk about justice, which I'm sure, as you know, is such a hot button controversial word in our world today in so many ways. And that is because it just does not have a united definition within our culture that we can all agree on. And therefore, we tend to use the phrase like it's a justice issue as a weapon for both sides of almost any argument, as I tend to believe that everybody thinks they are on the right side of justice all of the time. I mean, literally, think of any heated or controversial issue and people always think that they are on the side that is just. And in our current cultural moment, Christians are, as we've talked about a little bit before, they are most often portrayed as not even neutral when it comes to justice issues, but instead, more often than not, we are seen as as largely repressive and sexist and judgmental hypocrites who are, I don't know, a hundred years behind the times. And for most people who are outside of the church, at least in my age group and demographic, the church, I believe, as a whole is just seen as this one non-relevant entity that actually promotes injustice and violence. And I, I think that's really unfortunate and that sucks because it's largely not true and it should not be this way. 
And so I could spend this whole episode telling you about all the reasons why I think that my particular opinions on different issues are correct, but that is not what this podcast is focused on. Because as you know, I wholeheartedly believe in God, a God who is thankfully a higher power than I am, and I believe that he has designed the entire world with purpose, and that part of that purpose designates certain things as right and other things as wrong. And therefore, in all issues, I want to seek out what he has to say, and specifically today, how that relates to the definition of both justice and righteousness, because that is a whole lot more than my personal opinion or just the current cultural take on the topic. And so what is right and what is just? Well, I think to start off, we have to go back to the heart of God in the word of God. And I want to start off all the way back to the basics, which is talking about fundamental human rights, which, as you know, is something I love to talk about. And as Brian uh, Tierney, T-I-E-R-N-E-Y, of Cornell University points out, it was actually Christians in the 12th and 13th century that began even the idea or the global thought about human rights in the first place. And this is because we believe in a God who designed things, including human beings, for a purpose, and that by their inherent design, they are made in the image of God, and therefore, by that fact alone, they are worthy of respect and dignity. If we take the design and creation piece away from the story of humans, then what we are left with is simply cosmic accidents that can be categorized, quite frankly, any way we want to, whether that be as precious entities or as disposable trash, which is the case in so many places in the world. But the bottom line is, without God in that equation, each individual person can decide what the value of a human is, which we do for better or for worse. And so, therefore, the Bible, when properly understood, is actually the foundation for our modern understanding of basic human rights, which I think is just really cool. But, I mean, I feel like I'm already on a tangent. This episode is specifically about justice and righteousness, so let's link that back in with what it has to do with justice specifically. Now, I think I've made it pretty clear by now that I'm from Australia, and so a lot of my worldview and how I see things is different from the Americans that I live around. But I also think it has given me a pretty unique perspective on how I think about a whole lot of different things because Australia and the USA are in many ways very different countries. And what I have concluded after living here for eight years is that at least in part, you can tell what a country values by their laws and their systems. For example, in Australia and in general, I mean, obviously generalization, but in general, Australians do not live to work, they work to live. In Australia, working these long overtime hours does not earn you the same status and prestige that it does in the United States. People do not say, wow, you are so successful. They say, wow, what a waste of your life. And the laws of Australia and the systems in that country prove and support that worldview. For example, so many things close at 5 p.m., there are very few things that are open 24 hours a day, and you get at minimum twice as much vacation or holiday time than you do in the USA. And so all of that to say, Australians value for work-life balance, for time in the outdoors, for family, for enjoying life, for going to the beach... All of it is built into the very framework and laws of the country, as every country's laws and systems represent what they value. At least, of course, in theory, they should. And so, with that in mind, here's a fun question. Can you imagine, then, if God himself designed and orchestrated an entire society? If he, based on what he valued, made the laws and put all the systems in place, 
What would that look like? What would the laws and the rules be? And in turn, what would that represent about his priorities, his character, his values, or his heart? Well, as you as you can probably guess where I'm going with this, maybe, hopefully, uh, we actually do have that opportunity because this happened. This society was real and alive, and of course it happened with the nation of ancient Israel. And so if we want to know biblically what justice and righteousness looks like in practical, everyday, real-life laws and society, if we want to know how God defines it and how that looks like practically, a great place to start is by simply looking at ancient Israel. Now, when used in the Bible, the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat. And yes, you bet I googled how to pronounce mishpat and then said it about a hundred times before recording today, and so I'm probably still getting it wrong. But this word appears more than 200 times just in the Old Testament alone, and in its most basic form, it means that we are to treat people equitably. For example, in Leviticus 24:22, the Lord tells Moses that Israel is to have the same mishpat or the same justice for the foreigner as the native. And in this particular context, he is talking about crime and their punishment, that a person's punishment for the same crime should be the same, regardless of their race, their social status, their gender, etc. And of course, this is very similar to how we would use the word justice within our own society. It is very much entwined in law and order and crime and punishment, the judicial system, etc., etc. But this Hebrew word and its original meaning actually goes so much deeper than that, as in its biblical context, mishpat is to give people what they are due, whether that be something like punishment on the one hand, or on the other hand, protection and care. For example, in Deuteronomy 18, the Lord says that the people of Israel are to give the priests a percentage of their income, their first fruits, in fact, and this payment is their mishpat, it is their justice, it is what the priests are due. This is also why a lot of the time that it's used in the Old Testament, justice is referencing not only crime punishment, but the care and provision for four different kinds of people, which is known as the quarter of the vulnerable, which are widows, orphans, immigrants, and the poor. And so if you want to know what justice looks like in a society set up by God himself, then the answer has a lot to do with care for society's most vulnerable people. And in this period of history, these four groups of people had little to no social power or means to help themselves, which is why the Lord repeatedly calls his people to care for them. And today, of course, we could add, you know, a whole lot of other people to this list as well, like refugees, single parents, the elderly, the homeless, kids in foster care, just a couple of examples. I'm sure you can think of others. But the point is this. When the Lord set up his society, he did not just suggest care for the vulnerable or he didn't say that it was a good idea or a really nice thing to do, but he actually wrote it into the very laws and the systems of the society itself. And as another example, we have Leviticus 19, 9 to 10, which says that when they were harvesting their crops, the Israelites were to leave a portion for the poor and the traveler so that they could harvest and eat. In other words, practically, they were to limit their profits by leaving space for the vulnerable. Can you even imagine if our society was set up that way? It's just so different and so contrary to how we live our lives. And so again, just to drive the point home, the Lord wrote care for the vulnerable, aka justice, into the law. 
What was the end goal of this system? Well, again, Deuteronomy 15 tells us, quote, There need be no poor people among you, for in the land the Lord your God is giving you to possess as your inheritance, he will richly bless you if only you fully obey the Lord your God and are careful to follow all these commands I am giving you today. And then later, If anyone is poor among your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. And so, therefore, in the Old Testament, it was not simply good or kind to care for the vulnerable. It was, in fact, a matter of justice. And the justness of a society orchestrated by a good God included the care of those who were most vulnerable within it. It also meant treating people, all people, equitably. And again, it comes back to this whole thing of human rights and inherently believing that people have dignity simply because they are made in the image of God. Sri Lankan scholar Vinoth Ramachandra calls this whole idea scandalous justice, which I really love. He points out that this whole concept was absolutely revolutionary within the ancient world, and that basically in all cultures of the time, the gods were identified with power and they were aligned with the elite within their own societies. The gods were very concerned about the royalty and the priests and the rich and the military leaders, and they were not associated with, let alone champions of the vulnerable, the poor, the orphans, the immigrants, and the widows, but not our god. And I think that is just so amazing and incredible and beautiful, and it makes me just love the Lord so much more. And so that is justice. So let's take a tiny break, and when we come back, we will take a look at righteousness. All right, thanks for sticking with me. Let's talk about righteousness. Now, I will post a photo today of my Bible on my Instagram stories because it's a bit of a mess. I got it at my confirmation service when I was 14 years old, and it has been, let's just say, well-loved. It's been all around the world. It's falling apart. The cover is essentially just a piece of string at this point. But you know what they say, a falling apart Bible is a sign of a put-together life, which is hysterical in my example, but nonetheless. But one of my favorite things about my Bible is the fact that at the back it has this handy-dandy little Bible dictionary that translates all of the complex bible words into language that a 14-year-old, especially a nerdy 14-year-old that actually uses a Bible dictionary, can actually understand. And this is what it says about righteousness. Being in the right in relation to God and not guilty before God. And this is quite honestly how it was taught to me as well, almost as rightnessness, a rightness with God. It had everything to do with Jesus and his sacrifice for me that atoned for my sins. And I think this is why when most people think about or read the word righteousness and what it means to be a righteous person, they associate it most often with personal piety and morality. Being a righteous person means being saved by Jesus first and foremost, but it's also entwined with being moral, abstaining from sin, being diligent in study of the word and in prayer, that kind of thing. And although all of this is true, it's not quite the whole rich picture of what this word actually means within the Bible. And so if you will please open your Hebrew Bibles, the word that you will find most often translated as righteousness is tzedakah, which I have to try very hard not to pronounce as tzedakah, which if you don't know what that is, you need to go and find out and experience it immediately. 
But in its original context, this righteousness was a very practical and day-to-day word. It referenced a person's behavior not only internally, but also externally and specifically within the context of relationship. It had a lot to do with how they treated other people. And therefore, living out or practicing righteousness meant conducting all relationships, those in family, in society, at work, every day, with fairness and equity and generosity. And this is why biblical righteousness goes so much hand in hand with biblical justice, as the two of them are paired together many, many times within the Bible. One such example is Ezekiel 18, 5-9, which starts like this. Suppose there is a righteous man who does what is just and right. And so there, right off the bat, we have those two words side by side. And this passage goes on to explain exactly what justice and righteousness looked like for this man. It says, He does not eat at the mountain shrines or look to the idols of Israel. He does not defile his neighbor's wife or have sexual relations with a woman during her period. He does not oppress anyone, but returns what he took in pledge for a loan. He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. He does not lend to them at interest or make a profit from them. He withholds his hand from doing wrong and judges fairly between two parties. He follows my decrees and faithfully keeps my laws. That man is righteous. He will surely live, declares the sovereign Lord. And so right here we have one biblical example of a person who is both just and right. These two Hebrew words hand in hand together. And what we can see through this example is what it actually meant practically for this person. Yes, he absolutely abstained from sin, but he also did honest business and he cared for the poor and he was a fair judge of other people. And so it is just so much more than this inner piety. It was living out his daily life unto the Lord, doing righteousness and walking out justice in his heart and his head and his house and his workplace and within his community. And to me, what is super, super, super interesting about this particular passage is verse 7b, which said this, He does not commit robbery, but gives his food to the hungry and provides clothing for the naked. I mean, okay, hear me out a little bit on this one. How does this person not rob people? By giving food to the hungry and clothing to the naked, aka by sharing his wealth and possessions, aka, aka by caring for the vulnerable. But the implication of this is that if he did not actively share his resources with the poor, he would be a robber who is not living justly. And I mean, I don't know if you find this interesting or if it blows you away at all, but I find it kind of fascinating. And what this means is that biblical righteousness is actually a lifestyle of right relationships, primarily with God, thanks to Jesus, but also lived out and expressed in all social and societal contexts. And again, the laws of Israel society were in many ways set up by God to be an active demonstration of what this actually should look like. And we have not only Old Testament examples, but New Testament as well. Take uh, Matthew 6, 1-2 as an example. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. And of course, what I find interesting about this passage is the phrasing, be careful not to practice your righteousness. And this, of course, just re-emphasizes the fact that righteousness is at least in part a doing word. And in this instance, again, is referencing care for the poor. 
In fact, this passage equates giving to the poor not with charity, not with kindness, but with righteousness. And therefore, the flip side is that not giving to the poor is not just a lack of compassion, but it is actually unrighteousness. And so, to make a grand point here for today's episode, not giving to the needy or caring for the vulnerable is out of line with a life lived in a right relationship with God. I mean, Put that on a bumper sticker. I mean, it's pretty long to put on a bumper sticker. No one will read it. No one will care. But still, I think it's a good idea. And just when you thought that we were done, we can actually add to all of this yet another layer of symbolism and importance because I think that God actually set up Israelite society in such a way that it actually paralleled and represented his own character. For example, just as God treated Israel with mercy and grace and generosity, so they too were to pay it forward, so to speak, in their treatment of the vulnerable. God provided for and sustained them as they were to provide for and sustain one another. Israel was to be holy just as the Lord was holy. Their practice of justice and righteousness was to be a display of God's character to the world, and so I, of course, would argue so are we. And so let's bring all of these pieces together because as previously mentioned, these two words, justice and righteousness, are coupled together a whole bunch of times in the Bible. For example, Jeremiah 22, 3, this is what the Lord says, do what is just and right. Psalm 89, 14, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Psalm 33, 5, he loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Psalm 103, 6, the Lord works righteousness and justice for all those who are oppressed. And I think you get the point. If we live out right relationship with God, others, the earth, and ourselves, then justice, crime punishment, and the intentional call to care for the vulnerable should cease to exist. Crime and poverty would essentially dissolve if we lived out righteousness correctly. And the most comparable phrase that we have in today's vernacular for this justice-righteousness pairing is social justice. But the problem is that, of course, in today's culture, this phrase just means a hundred thousand different things on both sides of so many different debates. It just means different things to different people, and it leaves a really bad taste in a lot of people's mouths, some for good reasons, others not. And so if these words don't do it for you, if you don't like the term social justice, you could try an alternative, like, I don't know, relational justice or practical justice or justice in action. That one is all hyphenated. Justice lived out in everyday life or something like that, even though they're not quite as catchy. They obviously roll off the tongue way less easily, but hopefully they convey the same point. That at the end of the day, this justice-righteousness pairing simply needs to be founded on the basis of human dignity, treating people equally, caring for the vulnerable, and doing, practicing, and putting action to our inward relationship with the Lord. Because biblically, social justice is both social, it is lived out in the context of relationship, and justice, about giving people what they are due and treating all people with equity. God had set up Israelite society in such a way that if Israel obeyed him and put his laws into practice, then the underclass, the poor, and the vulnerable should virtually have ceased to exist. There would be no long-term poverty if God's chosen people simply did what he said. And this whole idea was also an incredible reality for the person of Jesus as well in both his life as an example, as well as his teaching, as one of the beautiful trademarks of Jesus's life was his miraculous and glorious interaction with the sick, the diseased, and the poor. 
because in order to help them, he actually had to be among them. And not simply as subjects of his ministry, but actual people in his life as friends and as co-workers. And in order to be among the people like this, Jesus constantly crossed various lines that he wasn't supposed to. He spoke to women, he embraced children, he engaged with Samaritans, he ate with tax collectors, he touched the sick, he picked grain on the Sabbath, he dined with the worst of them all. Again and again, Jesus did not isolate himself from sin and brokenness, but rather he seemed to plant his life intentionally in the midst of it. And he instructed his disciples to do the same thing. And so at the end of the day, I really believe that the lives of Jesus followers are to be marked not simply by the absence of sin, but by the presence of justice and righteousness. Actual acts of doing that care for the vulnerable, the sick, the poor, and the immigrant among us. And this is not just doing things like volunteer, weekend projects, although it can include this, but it is instead much more all-encompassing than that. It involves an actual lifestyle of not just giving our finances, but our time and our friendship, our shelter, advocacy, support, and love. Our lives are to be filled with biblical justice and righteousness, a practical doing that requires intentionality and relationship with vulnerable people. And so how on earth do we do this practically? Well, I mean, that is basically the point of what this entire podcast is all about and essentially what our episodes are building up to. But in its absolute most basic and simple form, being a person of biblical justice and righteousness requires us going to the broken places of the world and being forces of restoration and reconciliation within them. And put most simply, as Tim Keller says in his fantastic book, Generous Justice, which I guess is a little resource room moment for you all today, but he says, quote, to do justice means to live in a way that generates a strong community where human beings can flourish. And as you know, we already have a whole episode of what it means for human beings to flourish. And so therefore, it is not a suggestion for us to care for the vulnerable and the poor in the Bible. It's actually a mandate and a kingdom value of which the reality is this. We cannot meaningfully relate to the vulnerable if we are isolated from them. And thus we need to integrate caring for the poor not only into our Christmas giving, but into the very fabric and the very foundation of our lives because it is not going to happen accidentally. It's not even going to happen very easily. And on that note, let's bring this whole ship in for a landing with a Tuesday tip for today. And this week, it is both very simple and very difficult, and it is this. My Tuesday tip for you is to meet your literal neighbors. Make it a point to meet everybody on your street or your floor or your dorm or wherever you live. I mean, there's a thousand ways to do this. Bake them cookies, invite them over for dinner, and just keep a special eye out for anyone who is elderly or single parents or immigrants or chronically ill individuals within your neighborhoods because I guarantee that they exist. Build relationships, pray for people, share with them, serve them, be vulnerable, be kind to them, do life alongside them. I mean, you already literally do life alongside them. So take it one step further to just fully integrate practical justice and righteousness into that relationship right where you live. And on that note, let's finish up for today. I hope you guys have the most wonderful week. Of course, I want to wish you a happy Tuesday, the best day of the week. And as always, I would love to hear all of your thoughts and questions. You can, of course, find me on Instagram over at how to live with the rich. You can also email me at how to live with the rich at gmail.com. Thank you so much for being here and I will see you guys next week. Bye.